Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and as per usual, unless he's not holidaying around the world and living by myself, my colleague Paul Rickard joins me in the studio. Paul? Look, I'm not holiday, <laughs> holidaying around the world, Peter. Thank you. Good afternoon. But uh, probably like you have been glued to the, the screens, particularly oh, in the eastern God. states with the, with the bushfires in New South Wales, Queensland, and now some in uh, South Australia. Mm. So, uh, look, it's been an interesting week in that regard. Uh, and I guess uh, there have been some interesting debates coming out of Canberra, of all places, oh, yeah. about... Who's to blame? Who's to blame, which uh, yeah, I think I think ScoMo put, them, put Barnaby in his place quite nicely, but... Yeah, look, I, I just think it's such a sensitive issue. There are a lot of people out there who want to link, um, you know, the, the wildfires in the USA, the bushfires here to climate change and other people say, oh, no, it's not climate change. But whatever it is, I think there's a lot of people right around the world who are worried about climate change and what we're going to be doing, talking first up, is a, a fund on the stock market that is actually designed for those sorts of people and it's actually done pretty well. It's performed pretty well. It's a, a low-carbon um, share fund. I think you're right, Peter. A lot of people are worried about uh, carbon, you know, the impact of climate change on mm. the world and, uh, and want to actually help uh, a little more altruistically in terms of how they invest. Mm. Uh, and the whole ESG, which is environmental, social governance type investing mm. thing, is, is getting a bit of momentum. Oh, without a doubt. And I think the... You know, you know, clearly if you live in a Pacific island, you'd be worried about climate change. But the, the thing is, it's a big debate. And, and look, the bottom line is, whether you believe it or not, a lot of people around the world do. And, and there's going to be market developments as a consequence. And this fund we're going to talk about uh, in, in the not-too-distant future, it actually positions itself to try and do well out of the changes um, that the community has with regards to climate change. We're also going to be talking to Simon Boda from Channel 9, famous uh, reporter on Channel 9, always associated with uh, you know, major criminal investigations mm. or whatever. And uh, Simon's got behind a, a charity, Ride for Justice. And Paul, what's behind it? Well, as I think it's to do with some of those, uh, and, and Simon explains this, Peter, as we'll find out, but uh, look what happens to the victims, yeah, uh, the families, the, the families mm. of, uh, of people that are, I guess, you know, taken or killed in very tragic circumstances, often quite violent, and yeah. the impact it can have, and uh, particularly kids, uh, yeah. when your know, parents uh, mm. die in circumstances or get murdered or you know mm. some horrible situations. Yeah. And uh, he's, I think, being a, you know, the the man at the front door, hard nosed reporter, hard nosed reporter, he has he's seen a lot of it yeah. firsthand. And, well, I got, uh, I got to say, Paul, I I went to school with um, John Cobby, who was Anita Cobby's husband, and. Uh, uh, they'd separated you know, before it all happened, but mm. I remember the impact on John as a as a human being, uh, understanding what happened to his you know, former wife. Yeah, he was just shot to pieces, as you 
as you'd expect. And so I think we often underestimate the impact that our families have. And I think that our interview with Simon is going to be very interesting. And finally, we talked to Wayne Sanquist from the Association of Independent Retirees. And it's funny, the May 18 election was a case of retirees strike back. Yep, a lot of, uh, a lot of retirees should be thanking uh, the work of Wayne and some other people who got very involved in the stop the retiree tax, you know, which uh, yeah. I know we were pretty heavily involved in, Peter, yeah. but it, it upset a lot of people. Yeah, it's scared, and, it's scared and, a lot. And uh, yeah, people, as we keep saying in government, sometimes forget they hate change, you know, mm. like when if you save, work hard, put your money away, then all of a sudden the government changes the rules, mm. you know, 20 years down the track. Yeah. People are really, really, really. <laughs> it's funny, yeah. Angry you're about that. Right. When, when, when you say I was going to say money. some other words, but I thought <laughs> yeah. I'm better not on no, radio, no, Peter. You can't say pissed off for <laughs> we'll, we'll beat that out. <laughs> but the bottom line is um, we'll be talking to Wayne, and clearly, um, retirees, we're under threat. And um, they can't be ignored, I guess the bottom line is. So without any further ado, let's go to James Harwood, the Portfolio Manager at Russell Investments, who is behind this low-carbon global shares fund. Welcome to the program, James. Thanks, Peter and Paul. It's great to be with you today. Yeah, look, James, I've got to put this interview in context, particularly when we're seeing bushfires everywhere around the world. They call them wildfires in America. Uh, a lot of people uh, are very conscious of, of climate change. I, I wouldn't be surprised if 50% of the electorate is concerned about climate change. And so when we talk about low carbon investing, this is a growing potential audience of investors, isn't it? Look, it, it very much is. And I think uh, also because you know a lot of asset owners are, are now being obligated to uh, to, to allocate their assets with uh, the environment uh, in mind. Um, I think uh, you know carbon and climate change. You know it, it's clearly, as you say, very topical with um, uh, with the fires recently here. But um, you, you've got to also take a step back and you know what is contributing to climate change. It, it's the burning of uh, fossil fuels and the release of carbon into the atmosphere or carbon emissions mm. uh, and. The, the low carbon strategies that, that, that I'm now running for a lot of these asset owners is specifically trying to reduce, you know, the, the exposure to carbon. It's, it's not necessarily looking to, to kind of eliminate exposure to carbon. Um, we know that a lot of the, you know, the, the energy producers that might be quite high emitters at the moment, they're also going to be the, the solution and the companies that are investing in technologies um, for the future, and you know, BHP would be a good example of that. That you know, they've been very, very much on the front for trying to to set carbon targets and reduce their carbon emissions and, and develop new technologies to, okay. to manage climate change. So, okay. So, what did you uh, just describe? How you go about selecting um, companies for your low carbon global shares fund? Um, I presume that you have both positive and negative screens. So maybe you could talk through those processes. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think maybe quickly going the, the original approach to you know, ESG and carbon investing was was to exclude companies, and um, we don't necessarily think that's that's the best approach. Um, just to purely exclude, um, we get carbon data. So uh, carbon is now widely uh, published by many companies across the globe and the ASX 300 is, is, is the, 
you know, it, there's a lot of disclosure from companies in, in the, the Aussie market, and it's the same for the global product that I'm managing as well. Um, we will take underweight to, to companies in, uh, in, in the global benchmark. Uh, carbon tends to reside in three kind of key sectors, so the, the energy, the utility, and the material sectors. So we, we take underweight positions to those, but, but very much at a, uh, a managed level, we, we don't want to take huge bets um, and huge risk uh, versus a benchmark. Uh, and I think that's another key thing that, that this strategy, you know, it, it's been seeded from a lot of uh, investors that, that had passive allocations to, to equities. They wanted a, a low-cost product. Um, so we, we've essentially developed a solution that, that delivers much lower carbon than uh, a benchmark like MSCI All Country World Index. Uh, so we've got a, a 60% reduction or lower carbon emissions to that, that particular benchmark. Uh, but we're able to do so at, at very low levels of risk. And I think that that's a really key part and key part of the solution is uh, having low risk. Because I think you know the early days, the early solutions for ESG were, were, were ones that often had high risk and, and high levels of underperformance. Um, we're able to, 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 to also positively tilt, so it's not just negative tilting, it's, it's positively um, tilting to, to, to certain ESG characteristics as well. And uh, you know, the results have been very pleasing. We've, we've delivered, okay, so let, let's, let's uh, just break that down a bit, James, because it's a, um, so that there are some negative screens, but you still have um, some weighting towards companies in the energy materials uh, sectors, but lower than than the market benchmark. And you also have positive tilts to to companies that are really friendly from a pro green. Pro green, or just try to explain how they how the other side works. Yeah. Okay. So there are there are two positive tilts in the portfolio. One is to to green energy. So right. we have a measure that. That measures um, how much uh, power is that, that, that a utility is producing that, that comes from renewable sources. So we want to have overweight positions to companies that are producing a lot of their power uh, from renewables. Uh, so we have this this measure, and we can we can take overweights to some of those those companies. Uh, we also have a, a, a ESG score, a proprietary ESG score for. Around 6,000. So, ESG, just to stop you there, we better just explain yeah. an acronym there. Normal people might not understand what you're talking about, and we want normal people to understand you, James. So, ESG? Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, um, environmental, social, and governance. Mm. So, that, that's you know, commonly referred to as ESG. Um, we have a score from zero to 10, uh, 10 being a, a company that is good on ESG uh, principles. And we want to take uh, overweight positions. To, to those in aggregate uh, mm. across the index, so um, so you know, I think it's it's important to have that green energy or the renewable energy exposure to this product. So we want this fund to to be positioned for the energy transition that, that we all know is coming. You know, there's there's 100 percent we're going to be uh, using less coal in 20 to 30 years time, and I think you know a lot of investors, you know, they they want want to position their portfolios and their assets, you know, for us to sustainable economy and you know to have a planet that's that's going to be sustainable for their kids and their grandkids yep. so um that's what we're able to do in 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 this portfolio 
So, so how do you go to people that say, um, and I understand what you're trying to do, but just to put the out the contra argument, who say that you know Australia is one of the biggest exports is is coal, and we've 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 built a whole industry and a nation's been built on effectively being able to export a lot of our you know, abundant energy supplies around the globe that are helping you know lift people out of poverty in places like India. So how do you and they create jobs in Australia? So are you? What you're doing, sort of undermining that. Is, is, how do you how do you respond to that sort of uh, challenge? Yeah, look, we're certainly not undermining it. And I think it's a good good question. Um, it, 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 without a doubt, um, you know, transitioning from you know closing down power stations, whatever it might, might be, that has to be managed with companies and communities. And I think uh, asset owners are very well aware of that and you know there's a lot of talk about something called just transition which has been like a uh, you know a, a, a tr- almost a trade union led type of movement to, to manage these changes so um, you, you know the, the last thing anyone wants is uh, you know a big kind of workforce that's, that's suddenly out of work because of uh, a sudden change and I think we all recognize as well that this isn't going to happen overnight this is a you know a 20 year type of transition that we're, that we're talking about I think um by 2040, there's a, there's a high chance that we, we don't have much coal-produced uh, power in, in Australia. Um, it's certainly a lot lot cheaper to, to build solar solar farms right now than it would be a, a coal-fired power station. And, um, you know, we want this portfolio to, to be positioned so at least it's, it's, it's in the right places for the future. And, and you yeah, know, for sure that's, that's going to be more renewable energy rather than rather than, uh, you know, old energy like coal. Okay, James, let me punch a few questions that a lot of listeners might be thinking about. Um, the fund itself, how long has it been going for? Uh, the, the global fund has been going for just over two years now. Okay. Um, what is the, the minimum amount you can put into it? Uh, the minimum amount would be around $10,000. Um, we also have a, a, an ESG ETF or, you know, an environmentally uh, conscious ETF, and, and, and that's just for Australian equities, and, and that's been around for, for four and a half years, and, and that, that's uh, also got a, a much lower carbon footprint than the, uh, than the Aussie market. Yep. Now, now the, the Low Carbon Global Shares Fund, is that a listed fund or, a, or an unlisted fund? No, it, it's, it's not listed. It's, um, it, it can be available on platforms. Mm. Uh, to date, it's been primarily seeded uh, by you know, more not-for-profit type uh, institutional investors than, than, than retail. Uh, I think the, you know, the, the mums and dads uh, have gotten the exposure from, from Rari. That, that's an, an Aussie equity fund. Um, but very much, you know, it's been built in, along the same lines and uh, you know, has that, that low-carbon aspect as well. Okay. And finally, um, returns, how has it performed? So the Global Fund has had a stellar 12 months. It's, it's up well over 1% versus the, the MSCI uh, Global Index. So, you know, we're, we're talking 20% plus returns uh, in the last 12 months. It's, it's about... 40 to 50 basis points ahead of the benchmark since since it was launched. Um, RARI, which is the ETF, um, that's also gone plus 25% so far this year. It's on a yield of uh, 5%, which is well above the ASX 200. 
And that was designed um, to also not have huge amounts of risk to the ASX 200. And when we designed that product, we wanted to, to have a, an ESG fund um, that, that had some good attributes that, that you know, a lot of investors are now looking for, but didn't have that, that kind of huge level of risk that, that some of the early ESG products did. And uh, yeah, we've, we've been able to uh, deliver some really strong performance. In the last four and a half years, it's, it's pretty much matched the ASX 200, but it's, it's delivered much higher levels of yield, which, which we know is important to retirees now. Yeah. Uh, and within that product, there's, a, there's, a, there's an additional hilt to, to yield because um, uh, that, was, that was part of the demand for, for some of the original investors in the fund. Okay, and that RARI is the ASX ticker code, so that's R-A-R-I, is that correct? That is R A R I Rory. Yep. So if you if you want to invest in the uh, in the ETF, uh, which is tracking an in, yep. sort of a a, a a low carbon collection of Australian shares, type in the ticker code into Comsec or Nabtrade or wherever you uh, your, your broking platform R A R I. That's uh, that's the one to go for. Is that right, James? That is the ticker. Yeah. It's uh, it's an ETF. It's got sixty five. Stocks in the uh, in the ETF, so it's a it's a well diversified uh, ETF. It, you know, a core core Australian equity holding. Um, the the management fee is forty five basis points, so it's a, a really low cost entry point for for an ESG product. And again, that was a really impo- important part of the design when we when we listed the fund four and a half years ago. Well, it's certainly a great idea for those people who want to invest and really do care about the environment. James Harwood, Portfolio Manager of Russell Investment, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Well, did you know that we publish seven free newsletters every week covering the most important financial, business and political news and how it affects you? Our regular Switzer daily newsletters are sent out every weekday morning plus Weekend Switzer on Saturday mornings and our best stories of the week in Switzer Weekly on Thursdays. To sign up today, head to switzer.com.au and click on the orange subscribe button at the top of the page or click on the link in the podcast description. So we're talking to Simon Boder, who's senior correspondent at the Nine Network and organiser of the Ride for Justice. And uh, I've known Simon for a long time. I didn't know you were a bike rider, mate. Mate, it came into play, um, well, strangely, it came into play only about eight years ago when I turned 50. Um, my father, many, many, many years ago when I was a boy, used to manage a motorcycle store, and my mother at the time said, you'll never ride, and despite his protestations, I never did ride, but um, the smell of the oil and the rubber of the <laughs> motorcycle store never really left me, and when, when the opportunity came for me to get hold of a bike uh, when I turned 50, well, I grabbed it, and off, I, haven't, I haven't put them down. Okay, well, I'm really happy that we're not talking about bicycles and you're a mammal, you know, one of those middle-aged men in Lycra. Mate, that would not be a good look. <laughs> I, I promise you that. I, I did go through a stage of that, but, um, yeah, I soon uh, realised uh, how I was offending people on the road, so I quickly uh, got out of that habit. <laughs> All right, before we, we actually work out why you're doing this, why don't you give us a, a bit of a history of your work uh, at Nine and News? Um, well, I've been at Channel 9 now for 30 years next May. Um, so I guess they, a lot of people refer to me as a veteran these days. So I, don't, I don't know if that's a compliment or not. But um, prior to that, I, I worked in newspapers. I, um, I did my HSC. And at, at that stage, journalism 
uh, didn't require a degree at university. You become a copy boy or copy person as they became and then a cadet. Um, and then once you'd done your cadetship, you uh, then went through the grading system of journalism from D through to Super A. And um, basically, I followed that path. And um, I, I've been primarily focused on crime through mm. most of my career. Um, I was taught uh, when I was a cadet, I worked um, with two great journos. Uh, one was Bill Jenkins and the other was Seth Colbert, both of whom were extremely highly respected crime reporters in, in Sydney at the time. And... They taught me the value of being trusted and, and being a man of your word and not breaking a trust. And I think that was crucial in, in I guess, in, in many ways shaping the way I've, uh, I've, I've made my career. Simon, have you ever been uh, scared of the report that you were um, covering on the news? And if so, can you tell us which one it was? Yeah, look, there was one time where... Well, there's been a couple of times, I suppose. Um, you know, I've nearly taken a bullet. Um, I was covering the Fijian riots at the time, and the cameraman who was standing alongside me, uh, who was working for another network, he took a bullet in the arm. Um, so the bullets were missing my head by about 30 centimetres either mm-hmm. side. Um, he was okay, thank heavens. He went down, but he was okay. Um, there's been a few other crime stories that I've dealt with in, in Sydney, um, one of which I ended up becoming a... a a key witness in a murder trial on a, on a, a man who'd murdered a prostitute. Um, he's now doing life in jail for, for that offence. There was another time when I got involved, there was a, a case of a man who shot a number of people in Wollongong and he decided to reach out to me. Um, and I then, in a, in a way, I suppose, I, I talked to him and giving himself up. But I guess I wasn't really scared about that. But I guess doing the job I do brings me into contact with all sorts of people, from cops to lawyers to crooks. Yeah. And, um, you know, you get to meet them all, and some of them you respect and some of them you don't. Yeah, and I guess the scariest ones of all are all your media mates when you go for a drink. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You've got to watch out for that, mate. You've got to watch out for that. Okay. Now, now my colleague, Paul Rico, actually organises a bike ride for charity. So, you, Paul, you got the leading question for Simon? Well, I have, of course, uh, Simon. This is a... Uh, a charity, it's called Ride for Justice, and you're supporting homicide victims and their loved ones. So can you tell us about, uh, A, the sort of the need for this support and, and um, the money you're raising? Um, how actually is it going to help and where does it go to? Well, Paul, this all began um, seven years ago this year. We've held our seventh Ride for Justice this year. And it began, I was, I've had a lot to do with the Homicide Victim Support Group for the last 23 years. It's been in place probably, I think, for 23 years. Um, and it was begun by um, the parents of Anita Cobby, the nurse who was murdered at Blacktown mm-hmm. back in 1986, and also the parents of nine-year-old Ebony Simpson, who was a little girl who was abducted and sexually assaulted and then thrown into a dam to drown near her home at Bargo in the Southern Highlands. Um, because of that involvement, the Homicide Victim Support Group have a respite house called Ebony House down at Waterfall in, southwest, in the southern suburbs of Sydney, and six years, seven years ago, we were doing a uh, working bee, just tidying the place up. And Ebony's father, Peter, and I had got pretty close over the years. And we were standing there at the fence, and he was telling me all about this truck convoy that went through his town on the south coast and how it attracted so much attention. And um, I said to him, well, mate, I don't drive trucks, but I do ride motorbikes. And it just got me thinking that, you know, perhaps I could organise something aimed at mostly first responders, um, emergency personnel, and... Um, 
for us all to ride and to raise awareness. At that stage, it was more about just awareness of the homicide victim support group because you imagine 50-odd motorbikes rumbling down a roadway tends to get people to turn their heads mm-hmm. and then they might ask a question and we can explain what the homicide victim support group's all about. Then we started raising funds. Um, I charged registration of the ride and as it's grown, we've raised more and more funds. The police bank has come on board as our primary sponsor and so we raise in excess of $20,000 a year, which is now going to specifically the Homicide Victim Support Group are building a world-first trauma centre for children of homicide. Interestingly, when you think about families of homicide victims, there is always services available for, um, I guess, husbands, wives, brothers, sisters, but there's not much around that's going to cope with the children's trauma. And the, ch- the child of a homicide victim goes through... I guess, unbelievable trauma when you think about it. And, and this, this centre is in, being built in um, Western Sydney and um, I'm, I'm an ambassador for it. It's called Grace's Place, named in honour of Anita Cobby's mother, Grace Lynch. So um, that's, that's where all the money goes and um, the ride has grown. I guess it began back in 2013. We had, I think we had just nearly 50 riders. This year we had 250 um, taking part, leaving Bondi, heading down to Webbing House. And um, I think it's, for all the riders as well, and we're not just talking law enforcement now, we're, you know, we are talking a lot of police, we're talking lawyers, judges, magistrates, ambulance officers, fire brigade officers, but also just people who believe in justice. Mm. And when you see them meet up with the families of homicide and they tend to greet us wherever we finish the ride and we have a picnic together and they get to meet them and get to understand these people a little bit better. And what it also offers is for the victims, the families themselves, they realise that they're not alone, that there is a community out there that is supporting them in in what they're going through. And I think it it works both ways. There's benefits on both sides. So, Simon, if people want to get involved, I guess, in two ways, one, by, you know, reaching to their pockets, or second, um, being a a part of the actual ride, how do they do it? Yeah, well, we've got a a Ride for Justice uh, uh, Facebook page, which has been set up, which is... I guess that's the, the primary place to, to look if you go on um, you know, Facebook. I'm, technically, I'm inept. I've got a great guy who helps me out with all the IT stuff, but he set up this page, and you know, anyone who is interested you know, can look for that um, on Facebook, and uh, they'll get all the details about the upcoming ride. I don't know where we're going to do it next year. I try to plan a different start location each year. Um, we've had Luna Park. We've had the SCG. We've had uh, the Opera House Forecourt. We've done Bondi Beach. So I've now got to come up with something for next year. So guys, any ideas from you, I'd, I'd, I'm warmly welcome. <laughs> okay. And, and what, what, when do you actually do the ride? Well, again, it depends on um, my organisational abilities because it's a fair bit of organisation that okay, goes into oh, it. Yeah. And it's primar- primarily it's myself, my wife, Karen, and, and my kids, Aaron and Max. Yeah. And we, we sort of devote the time to, to building it up. And what I try and aim for is either spring or autumn because the weather's friendlier at that time it's mm. not as hot or cold um so i'm yet to decide whether or not we'll do a spring next year or autumn but we'll see okay mate do you want to finish off with simon boda national nine news well mate i don't work there anymore but i'll give it to you <laughs> simon boda national nine news <laughs> excellent mate thanks for that thanks Simon. all right good on you guys thanks very much for taking the time and that was simon boda of channel nine now did you know They'll have a book at the moment. Well, I did know, Peter, that you got a book, and of course, it's uh, it's yeah. called. <laughs> well, I didn't expect you to answer that. That was like one of those ads. We said, "Did you know?" Uh, I, I maybe should have used that tone. Did you know? Anyway, it's called "Join the Rich Club." 
Uh, and the idea is that I figure everyone listening should join the Rich Club because as Sophie Tucker once said, I've been rich, I've been poor, rich is better. And you can get joined the Rich Club from Switzer's store. Dot com dot au. I'm not sure why it's not Switzer's stores, Doors, but yeah. we weren't thinking big enough when well, we put that's that true. website that's in true. place, will we? Yeah, that's true. Switzerstore.com.au. And the price? $24.95. That's a bargain. It's a bargain. <laughs> it's the cheapest outlay you can imagine to get rich. My next guest is the president of the Association of Independent Retirees. His name is Wayne Sanquist, and he he basically was involved in all of the agitation before the May 18 election, where a lot of retirees were a little upset about franking credits and negative gearing and even changes to the capital gains discount. Wayne Sanquist, thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you, Peter. So, Wayne, before I ask you some questions about how the average retiree is feeling about the investment circumstances and the environment they're, they're working in. Explain to us what is the Australian Independent Retirees Association? Okay, the Association for Independent Retirees was an organisation, a volunteer organisation set up in 1990. It's been going nearly 30 years, mm-hmm. uh, principally to advance and protect the interests of self-funded retirees and partly self-funded retirees. Mm-hmm. Uh, those people in retirement and those people approaching retirement. Recently, we've extended our membership to over 50s mm. uh, who are looking to be a self-funded retiree uh, uh, once they get to that age. Okay. And, and what is the membership in terms of numbers? Uh, we have a, uh, th- around 3,000 members mm. uh, right across Australia, uh, organised into about 40 branches mm. and in all the states. Uh, we also have a national online members group for those people who maybe live a bit far away from a branch. Okay, all right. So obviously because of your connection to all those sorts of people, um, either to, uh, about to retire or are retired, what is their feeling about how easy it is to generate the income they need in retirement right now? Look, to be fair, I would say that over the last couple of years, our membership is starting to feel under quite some pressure. Mm. Uh, they've seen their, their returns uh, reduce over the last 10 years from, say, a comfortable 5 or 6% return easily achievable mm. to something now less than 2%, mm. 1.5%. Uh, this is because uh, a lot of the uh, older retirees in particular have used term deposits as their main source of income, mm. and the income for that has returned has reduced significantly over the last three or four years. Mm. And so, in a sense, because of interest rates being so historically low, a lot of retirees are being forced to move up the risk curve, which is something they really don't want to do. Uh, Absolutely, I'd agree with that. Uh, uh, Ten years ago, uh, even after the GFC, they could find a term deposit that was risk-free. They didn't really have to think about evaluating risk. Mm. And that, I think, is one of the big challenges that retirees are currently uh, looking at mm. is how to evaluate a, the risk of a given investment mm. to meet that higher level of return mm. because it's important and they're not skilled in yeah. that area. And, and is this the feedback you're getting from your members that this is a, a challenge they've never had to really deal with before, working out hybrids, working out different kinds of alternatives to term deposits which don't have government back, uh, guarantees? Uh, look, uh, I think... Uh, it's the feedback 
or people who've invested in term deposits, say, nine or ten years ago. Most of our members uh, who accumulated assets uh, prior to the GFC did uh, save by investing in the share market mm. and were reasonably diverse. But at the GFC, that made a tremendous change in their aversion to risk. So they pretty much uh, withdrew their funds at the wrong time, yeah. took a capital loss, put the remnants into a term deposit mm. at 5 or 6% and then hung on. Mm. Uh, so these aren't and people... missed out on the rebound of the market as well. That's 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 correct. Mm. So they 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 did get the growth initially, mm. but if they sold out in the GFC, mm. then they felt like they've missed out on so much potential earnings, mm. and the quality of their retirement has suffered as a result. Mm. As a consequence of that. Do you think retirees have learnt the lesson or is it, is it in many ways they're learning new lessons all the time because the, the lesson is not the same? They're either uh, needing to learn the lesson mm. uh, if they're recently retired mm. and they're finding or confronting a very low return environment yep. or they have to relearn uh, what it is to invest in growth assets or income producing assets that aren't guaranteed by the government mm. uh, and that that is a that is a challenge mm. uh, what also has happened is that the people who are in their 60s investing in the share market before the GFC are now late 70s mm. and they are much more risk averse yeah. so even if they can remember about buying into shares or other investments that, that grow and pay income they're very nervous about doing it because it requires a lot more assessment. Yeah, and they're, and they're afraid of capital loss, aren't they? That's right, because they've already lost it once oh, yeah. and they don't have enough to last them for their life expectancy at this, at this stage. So It's a big it's, drama. It's a big drama. Um, so what does AIR, the Australian Independent Retirees Association... Association of Independent Retirees. Yes, yeah, Independent yeah, Retirees. Yeah, so... What does it actually offer uh, its members? Look, its key benefit to our members is strong advocacy. Mm. We, we advocate uh, to government and to uh, various inquiries on retirement savings, super, tax, age pensions, age care and health, mm. predominantly. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and, and that is what members who come to us are typically looking for. They're looking for someone to represent their interests mm. uh, with the government, to put in submissions to inquiries, to argue on their behalf uh, to government or to statutory authorities mm. to, um, so that they can maintain their lifestyle uh, in the way they wish to live it um, and, uh, and continue to be as independent as they can be. I, I presume before May 18 and the election, you were pretty busy advocating um, arguments against franking credit changes? Look, we were strong on franking credits and we are a member of the Alliance for Fairer Retirement. Mm. Uh, but we also submitted a, a raft of pre-election priorities uh, across other areas of retirement savings and tax uh, 
we advocated against uh, changes to negative gearing, capital gains tax, uh, a number of other changes of that mm. sort. But we also advocated for things in the aged care space, yeah. uh, uh, some of which were achieved prior to the election. Overall, our members were quite satisfied that that strong advocacy and uh, intense media uh, engagement that we did prior to the election actually they felt made quite a big difference mm. to uh, to the outcome. Yeah, and what about uh, we've heard a lot about the retirement income system, and there's a federal review of that. Um, what's your thoughts on that uh, retirement system? Is, does it need to be improved? Look, the the justification for for having a retirement incomes review is out of the Productivity Commission which indicated that they wanted the government to have a review before any contemplation of uh, progressing the, the compulsory super contributions from nine and a half to 12. Mm. That's legislated, but uh, they felt that it was important to establish the current facts of how the three pillars of retirement are working, individually and collectively. And so that's primarily, I think, why the government with a productivity recommendation has undertaken to do this review. I, I think that uh, there's, a, there's a thought out there that, that it is like any other superannuation review or pension review where there'll be a bunch of recommendations, but the terms of reference clearly indicate that it's all about gathering the facts, establishing a baseline understanding of how those three pillars are working individually and how they interact because I, th I think that everyone would have to agree who's looked at the system over the years of constant change there have been significant anomalies that have crept up uh, into the system uh, that have affected how say for example the age pension interacts with superannuation how uh, private savings are, are treated uh, in conjunction with the other two so those sorts of things we would expect to be identified mm. as part of this review. Um, what are the key things people should be thinking about um, you know, if they know they're going to be an independent retiree? Well, we see independence as being uh, more than just financial. We see independence uh, and how it matters as being about life choices, a choice around where they want to live, how they want to live, lifestyle choices, what they want to do in retirement healthcare choices, health insurance, all these things that go together. It's not just about being financially independent. It's, it's the full package in terms of having their head in the right space, if you, if you yep. know what I mean, around uh, approaching retirement, understanding what they're going to do and how they're going to do it, and making informed choices. And I guess we see our role in trying to inform them around that breadth of, uh, of choices in their lifestyle. Mm. One last one. Do have you come across many people who have actually written a plan for retirement? You know, it's, people roll into retirement, but it's such a big step in life, it kind of deserves a bit of a plan, doesn't it? Well, one of the things we we talk to our members when they join uh, is uh, if if they if they're approaching retirement, then obviously these people have been thinking about what they need to do, and they often have a plan. Mm. Those people that fall into retirement, get to 65 or 67 and say, oh, I must 
I must have reached the right age, I'll stop work. Mm. But they haven't thought about what they'll do in retirement. So really we like to talk to them about reinventing. It's a reinvention, not a retirement. They need to keep themselves occupied but in a different way. Uh, And uh, I think there's a great resource there in that age group uh, who who have quite good health, Mm. quite good longevity and and eager to participate in society. Uh, It's an untapped resource which... uh, we're trying to help uh, live a, a more fulfilling retirement. Okay. If people want to know more about your organisation, where do they go? Uh, we have a website, mm. uh, www.independentretirees.com.au. On there, they can see all our submissions to government through advocacy, all our media releases around various policies and how we advocated prior to the last election, mm. uh, and together with where their local branches are, and, uh, and who the people are to contact. Great stuff. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Well, it's the show for this week, Paul. Um, do you think we made you know, investing in low-carbon shares sexy? Look, I think we uh, helped, Peter. We certainly didn't get into the uh, debate about um, you know, climate change or no. not. But no I point. Know, no point. No point. You can't win that one either way. So, no. But we know a lot of people are very passionate about that yep. and uh, seems to be the number keeps growing. And, and we've seen um, whether the mm. bushfires in New South Wales and Queensland are part of it, who knows. But yeah. uh, those things scare people and worry yeah. people. And I think yeah. companies and particular investors are going to keep on looking at uh, yep. uh, this issue. Yep. Whether you agree with it or not, the market, at least 50%, I reckon, does. And that's where business goes. Business will satisfy what the market wants. That's the show. That's what we do. We satisfy what the market wants. Time. 